0: A new survey shows at least 7.5 million Americans became gun owners during the pandemic. And an interview with Ian McCollum of Forgotten Weapons. That and more on this episode of The Weekly Reload Podcast. I made the devil run. I gave him poison just for fun. I had one All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of The Weekly Reload Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Gutowski. also the founder of TheReload.com, where you can buy a membership today to get exclusive access to more reporting and analysis and even this podcast a day early and you'll have the possibility to both ask questions on on the podcast of our guests and also uh appear on the podcast yourself if you would like so make sure you head over today and check out we're actually doing a 20 percent off sale uh we do those every every so often it's not a regular thing but uh right now i think of the holiday season you can go and, and buy yourself a membership or buy a gift card for somebody that you would like to give the gift of sober, serious firearms reporting and analysis to. Um, but today I'm joined by Ian McCollum of the Forgotten Weapons uh, YouTube channel and website. Uh, Ian, can you just tell people a little bit about yourse- uh, yourself if, just for anyone who might not have heard of you?
1: Sure, uh, so I started running Forgotten Weapons about 10 or 12 years ago. Uh, it started off as sort of a side project of mine to archive information about unusual, especially prototype and experimental firearms. Um, And it has grown over the years into much more of just a video channel, Um, although I'm looking to restart an archival reference site, uh, hopefully, actually, in the very beginning of 2022. Open that back up. But for the last several years, I've been doing videos on YouTube, uh, basically six or seven per week on sometimes interesting and unusual firearms, Sometimes very common and well known firearms, because the way I see it, you can't really understand the stuff that didn't work if you don't have the context of knowing about the stuff that did work and vice versa. So,
0: yeah, and it's, it's been a lot, it's of been fun. very successful as well. Uh, right. And, and at least from what I could see as somebody who's been a subscriber for many years now, actually, <laughs> um, th- there's quite an audience for what you're doing
1: yeah I'm at like two and a quarter million subscribers right now on youtube uh, subscriber numbers on YouTube aren't really that that useful of a, a number, but it's certainly a very impressive number to tell people
0: sure and you've got a lot of videos that have millions of views on them and, and uh I think you've brought a lot a lot of uh quality well researched information into the world that perhaps uh, wouldn't have made it to such a large audience otherwise um, which is one of the reasons why Thank I wanted you. to have you on i mean it's also fascinating to me. That you're able to capture an audience that big with the con- which really historical content, like you're you're talking about the history of development of firearms, uh, which is something that perhaps a lot of people wouldn't expect to have such a uh, a large potential audience for. Uh, what do you think it is that that draws in so many people to what you're doing?
1: <laughs> it is definitely a very nerdy, very niche sort of subject. Uh, I think what has made it more broadly interesting to people. And in fact, I get a lot of comments from people who say things like, oh, I live in the UK and I've never owned a gun and I can't really ever own a gun, but I love watching all your videos. I think what has done that is treating each gun as a story. There's something that, you know, every video that I do, there's something to tell here. And sometimes it's a mechanical story in that the gun is some very interesting unusual, complex mechanism, which almost guarantees that it will be a forgotten weapon because those sorts of things almost never actually work right. Uh, but sometimes it's a historical story. Sometimes I'm looking at a firearm that has a very specific, interesting provenance. It's tied to a particular event um, that we can discuss. Um, and sometimes it's a, a less specific, you know, it's a historical story about that pattern of firearm. How did this fit into history? Why was it developed? Who was it developed for? And if you can present that, I think there's always something interesting to be to be found there. And so if you get away from some of the very generic, oh, this is a Mauser and it's got a bolt action, but if you can get into, well, who actually made this and where did it come from and why did they buy them? I, I think that that can be much more broadly interesting to people than just is gun shoots bullet.
0: Yeah, yes. I, I think that's I think that's very true. I mean, you you definitely are able to tell a very engrossing story when you look at some of these firearms. I mean, that's I think what got me. Into watching your videos in the first place. Uh, obviously, the level of expertise is extremely important. You're not just guessing at these uh, events and and trying to sort of uh, think your way through how this could have been designed. A lot of times, you have the necessary. You've done the necessary research to understand what uh, what happened along the way in development here and why it was why it didn't work out. Why some guns do work out. All of the all of this stuff be very well researched um, and. Don't tell a lot of people in media, but oftentimes I will <laughs> watch your videos uh, for my own research when I'm trying to explain some issue that's that's happened recently. I mean, for instance, uh Alec Baldwin awesome. shooting situation, uh, you you had done a video, a very good video with a, a, an armor based in California, but who works on a lot of Hollywood productions uh, describing what it's like to uh Use firearms on movie sets and the proper procedures, and you went through a bunch of different kinds of prop guns and how they work and their dangers and the safety protocols and so forth. And so, I, you know, I personally use you as a resource. Uh, what what is it that made you get into this this field? This uh, I mean, it sounds like maybe it started off as more of a hobby. Was it connected to a, a job you had at the time? Um, and what, what was it that drove you towards it? What, what motivated this? Oh, it was
1: absolutely just a hobby to start. And it was a hobby based on the fact that I liked guns. Um, I wasn't, I would like to say I was collecting firearms at the time, but I wasn't really, I was kind of sort of vaguely accumulating them, uh, when I could scrape up enough money to buy something that was kind of weird and interesting. Uh, my father actually was a a firearms collector when I was growing up. Uh, he collected Japanese Arasakas and actually wrote a small book about them himself. And so I grew up uh, basically in my father's office. He had a bunch of pegboard and he had uh, a couple dozen Arasakas that were all stacked chronologically. And so on the Type 99s, you could actually watch this change in features uh, through the progression of World War II, which struck me as very interesting at the time. Uh, So basically there was a a founding moment when uh, a friend of a friend had found access to some really rare documentation. information on all four models of the Pedersen device, which some of your viewers may recognize or listeners may recognize as a pistol caliber semi-auto conversion of the 1903 Springfield. Uh, But at the time, they actually also developed it, developed versions of it for several other rifles, the Mosin-Nagant, the Enfield, the LaBelle. And those other models were never put into production, but this guy had found a bunch of the documentation and he was old and passed away shortly thereafter. And his family just threw all the stuff out. Because to them, it was some rando box of old papers. And we'll probably never find that stuff again. And that prompted me and a friend to go, you know, maybe there's something we could do about this to actually keep this information around. And uh, that's what spurred me to start Forgotten Weapons. It certainly expanded and shifted and changed paths a bit from there. But that's what actually started it.
0: Yeah, so it's this desire to preserve history, essentially.
1: Yeah. I have to say, I am hugely indebted to all the people out there who are primary source researchers and authors. Uh, What allows me to do this, especially at the volume of video production that I do, is that I've assembled a pretty extensive firearms reference library. And if it weren't for some of the people who are out there doing, you know, spending years and years writing, researching, and writing specific books on very specific subjects, um, I would have a very difficult time doing what I do today. Um, they've put the knowledge out there, but it's generally out there in the form of books that are very expensive, that are limited production. Many, many of them are long out of print. Um, and so being able to take that information and sort of condense it into specific individual stories of specific guns uh, is probably the simplest version of explaining what it is that I do.
0: Yeah. Now that makes a lot of sense to me. I I actually remember going to uh, big Sandy's uh, machine gun shoot, if you've ever been to that event in Arizona. Mm-hmm. And I think I, I haven't understand to, it, to some I degree the appeal of what you're talking about. Yeah, it's a fantastic event, right? It's uh, So people who own machine guns in America, uh, they like to get together and shoot them occasionally. There's a couple big events where this happens. Big Sandy is one of them. Uh, Knob Creek would be another one. But uh, that's probably even more high profile, really. Um, but Big Sandy, when I when I attended that event to write about it a few years back, Um, What I was was struck by was the sort of living history aspect of it. You have a lot of people there who own guns that are, you know, very uh, old and very historically relevant. Uh, But they also tend to be the kind of people who are collectors who have a sort of living knowledge of these firearms and how they work. And you get to see them in practice and you get to talk to people who, you know, in some cases literally wrote the book about them. There's one gentleman who uh got to shoot his um Vickers I believe which is obviously a World War 1 vintage uh machine gun and he had written an entire uh, book about the uh the Vickers and <laughs> he was like a, a human encyclopedia on and it it's very fascinating uh to interact with someone like that and shoot the gun that they that they have this knowledge about and watch them this guy was like in his eighties by this point. Um, and he, he could still, oh, yeah, he's like, like a thousand the, years old. The, <laughs> yeah. And, and so it, it was, it's a really fascinating thing to experience. Um, and there were people would go out, uh, even if they didn't own guns or have tickets to be able to shoot the guns, they, they have like this, um, spectators ticket that you could buy and you can watch these people and you can interact with the owners who tend to be sort of, uh, amateur historians to even really people who, again, have written books on the, the guns themselves and from first-hand, uh, you know, first sources, primary sources. And um, it's why it's just fascinating. It's kind of like walking through a museum, except the guns are actually being used in front of you. Um, and I think your channel lets people experience something like that as well. Well, I hope so.
1: I think there's there's a misconception out there that because machine guns are very expensive today, the people who own them must be like a bunch of rich people who are trying to you know her profiteering or trying to invest in machine guns and you know scheming to get the values to go up even higher when the reality is machine guns are very expensive today and so the people who end up owning many of them are incredibly dedicated to the history and the understanding of those guns because they have worked very hard and they've sacrificed a lot of other potential opportunities to be able to own or even collect machine guns and and for those people the history is what draws them to those guns and and it's fun i've i've talked to a great many machine gun collectors and owners and i don't think i've ever run into a person uh who would actually oppose the entire nfa being repealed uh the the registry being right. wiped out or at least uh reopened uh for new machine guns to be registered because yeah we all know that that would Tank the value the dollar value of many machine guns, but it would let so many more guns be protected guns that today are floating around unregistered, and there's nothing that can be done with them and when they surface you know when they someone dies and their paperwork's been lost or they never registered the guns after they brought them home from World War II or Korea or Vietnam, those guns today generally get destroyed or locked up in police collections, being able to actually put them back into the, the public domain, essentially, is something that virtually every machine gun owner I've ever talked to is completely in favor of. They'd all be perfectly fine yeah. with the dollar value of their collections dropping momentously if it meant that history being better preserved.
0: Yeah, I've, I've heard a lot of the same points made uh, about the, the NFA from people who would stand to make quite a lot of money off of their NFA items at this point. But, uh, and a lot of these people bought these guns uh, before the uh, for FOPA, for instance, which outlawed the the new oh, yeah. sale of, of fully automatic firearms, so so they bought them back in an era where they weren't worth six or seven figures, uh, and yeah, that's well, a Dolph- monetary windfall, perhaps for some of them. But but uh, I think they would prefer to get Dolph back
1: Goldsmith, to that. Dolph, the the Vickers author you were mentioning, mm-hmm. uh, he had a specific right. like personal rule that he wouldn't pay more than fifty dollars for a machine gun because they just weren't worth more than that.
0: Yeah, right? Mechanically, when you look at the what, what's in, like, the mechanical difference between this AR-15 behind me and uh, an M4 or M16 is basically nothing in terms of the actual value of the parts involved. But because of the way the law in the United States has worked out, you know, the, this is a, you could build one for $600 and the cheapest M4 or M16 you could buy is, you know, probably 20000 plus today you'd know better than I do at this point. Something but, like that. But yeah, I yeah. mean, it's pretty amazing how some of these policies impact the pricing in the real world. I mean, I guess that's kind of a economics 101, the supply and demand. But um, but yeah, I mean, uh, there's a lot of really fascinating guns out there that I think what, what, what people probably might want to hear from you is maybe some of your favorite gun designs that you've ever looked at uh, in your history. I mean, you probably get this question a lot, I imagine. So can you give just a couple examples of what, you personally really enjoy so to me the most
1: interesting periods in firearms development are when you have fundamentally new technologies that kind of appear on the scene and the two that are most relevant for my fairly modern uh focus are the development of the cartridge the self-contained metallic cartridge and sort of and actually it would be the development of smokeless powder because smokeless powder allows reliable self loading firearms both semi automatic and fully automatic and when that happens there's sort of like this gold rush of inventors with ideas and how do we how do we make cartridge cases if you look at you know periods around like the the American Civil War when the the metallic cartridge is being adopted you'll see this really interesting plethora of different designs you've got uh, there are some that are still using Uh, percussion caps with copper or brass cases that are containing powder. You've got cases that load from the front of the gun, cases that load from the back of the gun, uh, all sorts of interesting stuff. And what will happen is as inventors come up with ideas, they patent them. And so the most obvious, simple systems often get patented pretty quickly. And then there, there continues to be this big group of inventors who are still looking for You know, for their ticket into this new technology, and so they'll start kind of widening out into stranger and more complicated ways of doing the same thing, so that they can get they can build something that isn't under patent protection. And as a result of that, you get this all sorts of really funky and unusual designs that often don't work well, um, which makes them perfect fodder for a YouTube channel like mine. You know, oh, they made three hundred of these, and then everyone went bankrupt because it's a terrible idea. But man, it sure looks interesting. Uh, And the same thing happened with self-loading firearms. So in particular, um, it's it's both the self-loading designs where you get some of the obvious ones early and then you end up with weird, you know, inertially locked things. Uh, And then even better sometimes are the attempts to convert pre-existing manual operation guns into self-loaders. So turning bolt actions into semi-autos. It's a system that has... Almost never worked, like there are a few times when they 've been successful enough to actually get a few thousand guns produced. Uh, the Australian conversion of the lien field uh, into a light machine gun uh, is one of those examples, but generally speaking it's it's a few prototypes from a, a hopeful but perhaps naive inventor, and they go nowhere but man they 're really just really cool to look at
0: so those sorts of uh, firearms that maybe move the needle, uh, in terms of technological development. And then some of the, I guess, wake that's left behind from that new development, those are the ones you find most interesting. The ones that tried to follow this trend and then created these bizarre mechanisms that never really worked, but were fascinating to look at. Is that basically?
1: Yeah, pretty much. A perfect example would be the story of Roland White, who comes up with a pistol, a revolver design, uh, that is, it's basically unusable. Um. He patents it, but it doesn't work. And he takes it to Colt and Colt looks at it and goes, I'm not interested in this. I'm not going to buy it. Um, And the key element or what turned out to be the key element in his patent was that he had actually bored a hole through the cylinder all the way through. So a typical muzzle loading percussion revolver has a, a chamber in it that's solid at one end, except for a little hole for a percussion cap so that it's sealed. And what Rollin White did is he tried to come up with ammunition that would seal itself, but it wasn't a modern metallic case. And it wouldn't have worked. It would have blown out both ends of the cylinder. But he patented, he happened to patent the idea of drilling this hole clear through full diameter through the cylinder. And when Smith and Wesson come up with the first really practical modern metallic cartridge, which is essentially the 22 short, they go to patent it and they discover, oh, Rollin White already has this patent on this specific feature. And so they're able to buy a license from White to use it. And they prevent anyone else uh, from making a revolver that has a cylinder drilled all the way through. And it's a feature that wasn't particularly practical, didn't seem to have any use when Rollin White actually patented it. But once the cartridge gets invented, all of a sudden it's a key critical component. And Smith and Wesson essentially lock up the revolver market for many years and that, as a result of that, you get a bunch of other people trying to make metallic cartridge revolvers, and they come up with all sorts of other weird systems. Uh, like I said, some that we, you actually load from the front of the cylinder, somewhere you have a little sliding door on the side of the cylinder, and you like slide it open and put the cartridge in the side and slide it closed. Uh, some of them just straight up violate the patent. Uh, and there is in fact a series, there are a couple of lawsuits claiming that Colt didn't have Uh, didn't have the legal right to have this patent, that there was prior art that should have nullified his patent. And frankly, there was, not in the United States, but there were board through cylinder revolvers that were being made over in Europe before Colt's patent. Um, Anyway, it's a fantastic period because of all these weird workarounds that people have to come up with.
0: Well, uh, in this vein, I have a question from one of our members. Uh, which again, by the way, if anyone who wants can go and buy a membership today at 3 We've got a 20% off sale going on right now. But uh, Brian J asks, Can you name any weapon besides something French that failed to become mainstream or popular that you think should have been commercially successful? Oh,
1: the problem is there are very few examples of something that should have been popular but wasn't. Normally, if it didn't become popular, it was for a pretty good reason i'm thinking of all the old west stuff and you've got for example the evans which (laughs) sounds like a great idea it's a lever action rifle that holds 28 or 42 cartridges depending on the chambering but it's got a critical flaw that there's no magazine spring and so you actually if it's empty you have to cycle the action 42 times to get the first cartridge from the end of the magazine up to the chamber um (laughs) There's the Merwin and Hulbert made by the same company, which is probably the best menu, the highest quality revolver of the American Old West era. Like they're magnificently well-made, but they've got some kind of funky attributes to them. Like on paper, they sound great. When you open the gun up, It will open up just far enough that it will eject empty cases, but it will retain loaded cartridges. So if you fired three and you want to top the gun off, you pop the thing open, and the three empty cases fall out, and then you can close it up, and you've still got your three live rounds. The problem is you then have to reload the rest of them with a single-shot loading gate. So you open it up, and then you have to index the cylinder and find the empty chambers and load it that way. And so you kind of lose all the benefit, and the exquisite manufacturing made them pretty darn expensive. Um, there are no really good examples of something that,
0: sh- well, I mean, I think that's interesting in and of itself. So, uh, I mean, especially in perhaps the commercial market, perhaps, uh, the, uh, sort of evolution of firearms technology has gone in the direction that makes the most sense to this point. Is that a reasonable thing to say? I, I mean, I, I, I think would the imagine market... there's a number of perhaps military, uh, Uh, examples where firearms were better suited for their purpose, but weren't adopted until later in mass for a number of different reasons.
1: There are lots of military stories of, of where they like end up adopting a gun. That's definitely not the best thing they could have adopted. Um, I should also say there were a number of sort of corporate shenanigans. Um, uh, Again, I'm thinking about the, the old West period where, there would be a startup that was doing something that looked kind of interesting. It looked like it might challenge the, the, you know, the established uh, popular brands like Winchester and uh, large companies like Winchester would more often than not buy up those companies and just shut them down. So perhaps a good answer to Brian's question would be something like the Burgess pump shotguns, which did get manufactured, um, but they end up being absorbed and sort of put out of business. Because a company like Winchester had a gun of their own that was competing with the Burgess and they wanted to just like they wanted to get rid of the competition and we could fight it by trying to make the best possible gun and improve what we've already got, or we can just buy up the competitor and then shut down production. And that's really a lot easier. Yeah, that said, the Burgess Burgess isn't really a better gun than, than the Winchesters. So, it's it's not the 100 mile per gallon secret carburetor that
0: got scuttled you know what about modern uh day development uh you just put out a couple of videos on a new gun called the alien that sort of seeks to upend mm. some of the conventions we see right now in modern handguns because if we're being honest i think a lot of the modern handgun market uh, the polymer lower steel slide Browning, uh, you know, uh, action—they're uh, very similar to the initial Glock design from 30 years ago. There hasn't been obviously there have been improvements to that and little things here or there. And you know, you could make an argument for Smith and Wesson's got the best version or Glock or or, or Springfield or whoever, but uh, there hasn't been a lot of game-changing design improvements in that time period but you have a gun like the Alien come along uh, that you seem to be pretty excited about. Do you you think a gun like that is going to have a real impact on the movement of the modern handgun? Or, I mean, it starts at $4,000, right? It's sort of a a competition gun. It it doesn't have enough advantages to change the market. At
1: $4,000, absolutely not. At its current pricing, it will be a very niche item uh, for people who have the money to be able to drop on what is essentially a range toy. And I don't say that in a demeaning way. It's, you know, at that kind of price, most people aren't going to be willing to put the thing in any place where it might risk getting scratched or or damaged in some way. Um, I have hopes that some of the elements in the Alien will impact the larger market. In particular, I think the development of optical sights that are durable enough and small enough to fit on handguns i think that's a trend that is it's not going away and it will already we're seeing you know in the last five or ten years more and more ready adoption of optics on handguns and the browning slide is not really well suited to optics on handguns because that optic is slamming back and forth with every shot and one of the things that the alien does is it has a, a fixed top strap on the pistol Where the sights, either an optic or iron sights, are mounted so that they do not move when the pistol is cycling. That's a feature that I think, I hope, um, seems pretty obvious to me that that ought to be replicated in other new designs. Now, the downside to that is you cannot do it with a Browning tilting barrel slide based pistol. Um, And we've gotten, the thing is, we've gotten really good at that Browning system. Uh, People have been refining that that basic design for a hundred years now, 110 years now. Uh, And so they've gotten very efficient to manufacture, they've gotten very reliable variety of cartridges, and that makes them appealing. Like the best quality item is not necessarily the one that will succeed in the long-term because you also have to balance in uh, things like cost. So, with LauGo, they're a small startup company, and they're obviously they have to charge a what is basically by any other standard a ridiculous price in order to to meet the basic overhead of we're a small brand new company trying to you know, we don't have revenue from other sources to support the R and D and the development of this pistol. Now we've seen uh, F. K. Bruneau come out with a pistol that a lot of people are comparing to the Alien because it was also it was I think seven thousand dollars when it came out. Um, It is technologically not nearly as interesting of a gun, Uh, although it's worth pointing out that there's nothing fundamentally new. No single element of the Alien is brand new. We've had pistols that have fixed top straps. We have pistols that have gas delay uh, mechanisms. We have pistols that have uh, top-mounted hammers. But Laugo has put those together in a combination that is really good. Uh, And that's how all firearms design is done today. They're Virtually, there's basically nothing actually brand new. It's just different combinations of existing uh, ideas and systems. At any rate, FK Bruneau took their $7,000 pistol and used the money from that initial price point. As far as I can tell, I don't have any direct insight into the company, but they used that to finance a polymer-framed version of it and get some economy of scale going. And they were able to drop the price of the pistol to something like $1,500, I think. If Laugo is in a position to be able to do that as well, then I think we may see much more widespread adoption of, of their guns, but maybe they'll remain as a boutique, high-end, low-volume manufacturer. I, I really don't know. Um, I don't like to try and predict that thing because every once in a while I do try to predict it and it doesn't always work out the way I thought it would, <laughs> pointing to my Hudson's Right, there, right. Uh... which... I bought two Hunsons yes, for certainly. the price of one because they went out of business and the pistols all got blown out <laughs> really
0: cheap. Yes, there is sort of a uh, hot new thing every couple of years in uh, handgun design. And it can be hard to tell what's going to stick and what's not. And I think it's this also extends obviously to rifles, especially in the sort of AR-15 uh, family or, or competitor range with the AR-15 where it's like, is the Scar a better gun? Is the ACR a better gun? Probably, but is it $1000 better or $2000 better for most people? Probably not. And when you get that uh, that mature manufacturing process where you have 15, 20 different companies making the same design and improving upon the manufacturing process to the point where you can make them very inexpensive and they still have almost all of the benefits of uh, you know, a more expensive alternative that's might be a better quality gun overall, but is it worth that much more? You know, it's hard to change the market when it's something like that, I think. And that, I guess, is what
1: well, something think,
0: like the Alien or the, has to overcome.
1: It's interesting to me. I don't think any of those rifles are actually better than a current production AR-M16. One of the interesting things that I've I've found is... With just the sheer number of guns that I've looked into, I've been fortunate enough to be able to do this full-time. So I have a lot more time to read on these subjects than most people do. And it basically takes 10 years to get a design from concept to reliable production. And the two examples I love to use of this are the M16 and the AK-47. Because both of those guns had significant Hmm. problems when they were first introduced. Obviously, everyone's familiar with the problems that the M16 had in Vietnam, which are not entirely the fault of the design. They're largely influenced by the Army and some choices in ammunition and and training and other elements there. But even with Armalite's design of the gun, they went through a lot of iterations and they had problems that had to be fixed. With the AK, everyone thinks about the AK, first off, they erroneously think AKs are really simple and easy to manufacture, which they're absolutely not. Um, it just happens that the countries who were making them didn't really pay for them with open market money. Uh, and then they gave away the, the, the learned experience of manufacturing them to other countries who then had to put in quite a lot less to get production up and running. But the, the AK was supposed to have a stamp receiver when it was first introduced. 1947 and we ultimately saw it take 10 or 12 years for that to actually come to fruition eventually as the akm they had to like take several steps back and go to this just milled chunk of huge steel as a backup option because their early stamped receivers had so many quality control problems and so many manufacturing rejections that it just wasn't feasible to make them if you look for type 1 ak's surviving today and they're really scarce because they didn't make them very long because they were a dismal flop but they keep working on it and they they find the problems the small problems and fix them and there are problems that you will never find in a firearm or frankly in any other complicated mechanical item until you've produced thousands if not tens of thousands of the guns and so no brand new product like uh, you know an ACR Rifle or one of the Magpul Masadas or anything that's coming out, none of those guns are going to be as reliable or good when they emerge first as something like the M16 is now having had many decades of experience iterating and improving the design. There may be new rifles out there that, when they are mature, will be substantially better than the AR-15, but none of those guns are going to have the opportunity to get that maturity. Because they're far enough behind the M16 now that they're not going to get adopted. Like you've got to find a significant size military to adopt something like that, or a civi- you know, a huge civilian volume of sales to be able to get that much production in order to iron out the inevitable problems. Because there are always problems. Everything has problems when it's first developed. Yeah. Um, you know, every anyone, any company can make one prototype that works perfectly. But converting that into actual large scale serial manufacture causes problems. And you have to, it takes time and experience to work them out.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and you've documented this quite extensively on the channel, including the entire history of the AK 47's development, which was quite uh, fascinating to watch. And I encourage people who haven't seen those particular videos yet to go and and watch them uh, if you have any interest in how a gun actually becomes sort of iconic the way that the AK-47 has, or the M16, uh, obviously. And you have lots of videos comparing to as well uh, in in real-world practice, too. So um, uh, I wanted to talk a little bit now just about uh, some of the, you know, I guess not partisan politics, right? I'm not really interested if you're a Democrat or Republican, but more interested in some of the ways that even a gun history channel has run up against um, the politics of our era, right especially when it comes to being a large channel on YouTube in particular, which is you know kind of uh the which is the largest video platform in the world, the second largest website in the world right, and uh where you've had quite a lot of success but also quite a lot of Struggle with the platform as it's tried as it's grown and matured, and as it's, as it's tried to sort of uh, find a way of regulating gun content, uh, which oftentimes I think you and others in the community of gun YouTubers have felt has gone too far in how they've approached what poorly. what can be monetized, what can be on the platform at all, these sorts of things. So. Uh, you know, and you've you've personally made some significant news at points with, you know, considering working with other platforms, um, not monetizing content in order to have more flexibility of what you post and monetizing in, in different ways um, to try and support your vision for the channel without having to compromise based on what YouTube determines can be monetized by their AdSense systems. Can you just talk a little bit about? your experience over the last several years with this back and forth and what you've taken away from it and what you're kind of looking to in the future as the answer to these sort of struggles that you've had.
1: Oof, boy, I wish I knew the answer to what the future what, what future solution there will be. I'm always interested in potential ones, but it's still kind of an open question for now. Um, when it comes to YouTube, there are a number of problems stacked Together, Um, And it's easy to to jump to sort of a hyperbole answer that is YouTube hates guns because they're a bunch of whatever. Fundamentally, the problem with YouTube is that it is advertiser supported, which on the one hand is a fantastic opportunity and tool for creators on YouTube because it allows people to make content and make a living from it um, without having to go out and be their own marketing department. And it also means that that content can be freely available to anyone the 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 problem the conundrum i have always run up to of if you're not monetizing the content is generally speaking the alternative is putting it behind a paywall and once it's behind a paywall no one sees it it doesn't grow and it's not accessible and for me fundamentally one of the core principles of forgotten weapons is this my whole purpose is making this information freely publicly accessible and so i'm not willing to it behind a paywall exclusively so there are like i do use Floatplane, which is a very uh, that is a site that is a paywall um, because it pays for its own independent hosting Um, and i'm willing to do that because i also have it on youtube where it is not behind a paywall Um, patreon of course has been a fantastic alternative for many of these uh channels uh, for many people in this situation but to to get back to youtube for a moment The downside to their monetization is that YouTube doesn't have a very sophisticated way for advertisers to choose where their advertisements go. And so what what they have ended up with is a system where YouTube's trying to bubble wrap all their content and make it very safe for very large corporate sponsors, corporate advertisers, because that's where most of the money is. Uh, And they aren't willing or aren't able, I don't know if it's one or both, uh, to make a system that's granular enough to allow a company to choose where their advertisements are going to go. And so it's not just guns that have been impacted by this. It's a whole variety of of subject matter that are by, by any number of – basically, by any if it's by anyone's opinion on the fringes, then YouTube is scared of it. And it doesn't matter if it's on a right-wing fringe or a left-wing fringe or some other fringe on another axis of the political spectrum. If it is content that has the potential to get in the news and some company goes, oh my God, how did my Coca-Cola ad get in front of blah content, which some group of people are now outraged by. And then this group of outraged people decides to boycott Coke or whatever giant sponsor. That's what YouTube's trying to avoid. And that that exact phenomenon hit back in about 2016. And that's what everyone refers to as adpocalypse, which led to the system right. YouTube has now which is limited to this thing of, like, ads, maybe some ads, and no ads. And the maybe some ads, and this leads to the, the second tier of this problem, the maybe some ads rules are extremely poorly written. They're written by people who have no real concept of any of these different types of subject matter. And so you end up with, like, for several years, according to the rules, you could not monetize a video that showed firearm disassembly. And you still can't show it, it you, you can't monetize it if it shows, um, like, modifi- uh, well, firearms modification is one. And the, uh, the the question then becomes, what the heck is modification? Like, I've got, say, this 100-year-old Enfield that was re-arsenaled and converted from this configuration to that configuration. Is that scary, mo- you know, uh, modification? What they really kind of mean is things that make the gun look more scarier. Um. But they don't, the the people writing the rules don't really understand it. And the people enforcing the rules really don't understand it because I don't know for sure, but I'm pretty confident that these rules are enforced by essentially minimum wage call center employees, uh, who go through appeals and look at stuff and they're on a timetable and they don't really know what they're looking at. And, and they're not in a position to make a good judgment. And so it really, it. It puts a degree of uncertainty into the process that's very unpleasant for all of the people who are creating this content. Um, YouTube is is very non-transparent. It's very difficult to actually talk to someone. YouTube has has deliberately adopted a policy of, we will not tell you, if we determine that your video is is against our rules, whether you can't have some ads or you can't have any ads or whatever it is, we will not tell you why. Because if we tell you why, you'll be able to figure out a way around our rules. Which is completely backwards. Right. Like, if you want people to follow the standards, you at least have to you have to understand <laughs> what the standard is. But they've taken this just really in, infuriating in some cases. This really obnoxious approach of, well, if we told you what the rules are, then you would sneak around them. So we'll just not tell you.
0: Yeah, this that's this seems to, to be a list. common. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I- It seems to be a common thread among the major social media platforms as well. Facebook does basically the same thing with its content moderation policies. And, it, you know, obviously, to be fair to these giant companies, that's kind of, at the end of the day, how you have to do it to some degree. Maybe not the, I mean, they should should probably explain their rules better, but you kind of have to use automation because of how much content is put on your platform. You could never hire enough people to moderate it manually and and then you have to rely on generally speaking very low wage uh high worked individuals with you know low levels of understanding of the content they're moderating to I think you're making
1: an assumption there that that we needn't make or we should at least be visible about and that is that everything ought mm-hmm. to be monetized on Facebook or YouTube because there is a perfectly sure. acceptable alternative which is in fact how YouTube originally was Which was that you didn't, they didn't monetize anything until they invited you into the monetization program, at which point they do have control over it. They can say, this is content that we're comfortable with, and this is content we're not. Um, And we can actually have a real human being who understands these issues, who can talk to creators and say, well, you know, this, we're comfortable with this, but we would rather, we don't want this, or we would rather see this in this way. And then a creator can make a decision about whether or not they're willing to, to go with that system or, or refrain from moder- from monetizing it. But what these companies, what Facebook and YouTube in particular have done is they've taken the approach of we must put ads absolutely everywhere. And at that point, yeah, there's no way that they can have the staff to actually have any idea what they're monetizing. But the only reason they have to do that is because they want the money from absolutely the maximum number of ads there there's a compromise there yeah. that could be a compromise of the number of ads and the quality of the content and they're deliberately making that choice all in favor of more monetization
0: that's that's absolutely right yeah i mean it's cheaper and you make more money the way that they're doing it you're you're correct that they could do it in perhaps uh, maybe a more responsible way would be the sort of your approach that you're that you're discussing here but uh, obviously they they've put they've pushed for the more profitable uh, less expensive uh, overhead way of doing things, which does create a lot of these sorts of issues. And then, I mean, certainly I think it's not unreasonable to ask for better guidelines on how to post and that people writing them have some understanding of what they're actually restricting. Because yes, most of the gun policies on YouTube and Facebook and elsewhere are very incomprehensible if you know anything about firearms or even just about firearms content on those platforms. So. I think there's certainly plenty of uh, legitimate criticism to be given out to these major companies and how they handle things. Uh, I, I And I, I sympathize as well with your approach to monetization at the Reload. Obviously, we, we have to find some way to make enough money to support this operation if we're going to be able to produce the kind of journalism that we find uh, valuable for uh, the, the country at large. But at the same time, you don't want to produce it And not have anyone read it because that doesn't really get to the goal of being, you know, informing people. So you have to, it's always hard to balance that approach of what, what do our members get uh, compared to what everyone who gets, you know, they don't pay anything, but they, I still want them to be able to read the important journalism that we're producing. But we got to have enough for the members to feel like they've actually got something for the money that they're paying or else it's, you know, not a good deal. And so that, that sort of tension is, it's always there, but, uh, but I think you've navigated it really well. Um, and we're, we're doing our best to do that. And so it's, I think it's certainly possible, right. And you don't necessarily even have to rely on somebody like YouTube. I, I, this video won't be monetized. Maybe down the line, we'll find a way to monetize whether through YouTube's AdSense platform or through sponsorships. But, um, you know, it, it is, I mean, because it's also hard to have your whole income rely on somebody like Google uh, or YouTube because their policies are inconsistent and they could wipe out your income in the flick of a switch if they wanted to.
1: And the thing is, eventually, I'm, I'm quite convinced that eventually they will shut off all the monetization on Forgotten Weapons. And that it, if and when they do it, they will do it with no warning whatsoever because they've never given any warning or notification. Um, of anything that they've done previously. And that's what makes Patreon so valuable is Patreon is a reliable source. Now, there are some people who look at Patreon the same way they look at YouTube um, because Patreon did have some issues a couple of years ago with kicking off some people for wrong think. Um, and, And that worried me for a while. I've gotten more confident in Patreon's management just because they seem to have learned from that and been like, oh, maybe that was a bad idea. Um, I haven't really said anything about it in public, but it it has seemed to to become a little more stable. Uh, but i can at least more so much more so than YouTube. I can count on patreon, and so fundamentally, it is the core of Patreon subscribers that allow me to work with the confidence that I will be able to continue doing this. if it were just YouTube, I would constantly be hedging, and like I'm ready to bail from this when YouTube decides to turn it off. Um, patreon allows me to have the confidence that, yeah, even if that gets shut off, I will still be able to keep doing this.
0: Yeah. And I mean, look, millions of people, hundreds of millions of people are lawful gun owners in this country and throughout the world. Uh, They aren't part of necessarily any sort of hate group. There's nothing inherently wrong with owning firearms or talking about them or talking about their development or their history. There's really nothing in any of that that should be objectionable to the broader... Uh, sensibilities of any of these large companies, but they are. I mean, I I think this video alone right now, just for having this 30 round magazine for an AR in it, or the actual AR behind me, I believe that if I understand the policies properly, and they are very confusingly written, that could make this video, it's right here, uh, ineligible for for monetization. So it's hard to navigate and you have to be able to find ways to to get around, uh, relying on them, frankly, it's just, they're just not reliable partners for for content like this.
1: Yeah, I do want to say the audience has been fantastic,
0: and that's one of the problems. The audience audience wants it. Yeah, this is popular content. It's not. It's not you know, like this is some fringe content that you you or I are producing. These are these are. Th- I mean, uh, my reporting has been written, uh, read into the record in Congress. Uh, not that Congress, maybe that isn't always the sign of perfect, of great quality, but it, it can be. And in, I think in our case it was, but your content is enjoyed by millions of people every day, uh, across a YouTube platform. And there's nothing wrong with any of that. I don't see any ob- reason for people to object. And so, um, you know, it's unfortunate to see the way that the people managing the company have decided, but that's that's the risk you run with these sort of companies you want to get access to the larger platform to the larger audience uh you're going to have to deal with them in some way it's just whether or not you should rely on them for your income is the is the bigger question and i think a lot of people are saying no, and and you've been sort of at the forefront of that for a while now as far as online content creators go
1: i think one of the things that that endears me to at least a significant chunk of the audience and that i I like doing, and, and not uh, some other people do, certainly, but not everyone does, is I don't present this in any sort of, um, ex- I do I want to say excitable way, but um, I present this as just, these are firearms. This is history. There's nothing spectacularly uh, taboo about these firearms. There are millions, if not billions of them out there. They have had a massive impact. And everyone thinks about well oh it's a gun so it's had an impact because they've killed people but the reality is much of our industrial technology has come from firearms development whether we like it or not we have a whole bunch of very armed societies in the form of national militaries and we have for hundreds and hundreds well since the beginning of humanity and those major armies are are supplied by large manufacturing Uh, industries. And those industries, one of the big mechanical things that were being manufactured, especially early on in the Industrial Revolution, were arms. And so it is firearms that led to concepts like interchangeable parts, firearms that led to a lot of our modern machine tool technology. And it, it trickles down from firearms manufacture into all of the other cool things that we can make with those machine tools and those technologies. But if you don't understand the firearms, you're never going to fully understand all, so much of this wider history. And you don't have to exult in the fact that people got killed with these things. It happened. In some cases, it happened a lot. In some cases, there are many guns out there that have never killed a single person. Like the entire, like I bet no person ever in history has been killed with any Hudson. Um, and I think that applies to a lot of guns, way more than, than some people would expect. Uh, there's so much more to them than, than the, the like the the journalistic clickbaity. Oh, they're evil and black and they kill people and. It's right. I like being able to present these yeah. as a much more grounded, historically interesting, historically significant thing, and not is gun shoots bullet.
0: And and I think you do a great job of that. And and you can see the sort of issue creeping into even other history channels that aren't exclusively about firearms. You see this a lot. Anytime it's a taboo subject subject, there's always going to be issues with monetization on YouTube because corporate sponsors don't want their Coca-Cola ad or whatever appearing next to a video about slavery or the Holocaust, not because they don't believe those things happen, but because that's not the kind of content that they're going to want to put their brand next to. And as we get further along that spectrum and we tighten down the things that are acceptable uh, to be put on large platforms like this or are sort of the ideal thing, maybe they'll still accept those videos, but you can't make money off of them and that makes it impossible for uh, creators to do them for a living. That's gonna become more and more damaging to society as a whole, I would think.
1: I think a big part of the problem if not much of the problem most of the problem is the automation and the simplification that has gone into this sort of evaluation i totally get it that coke doesn't want their advertisement run in front of you know some dude with a swastika tattooed on his forehead ranting about how the jews are going to destroy the world i get it i wouldn't want my image associated with that either but the only way that that can be The only way to do that, the way they've chosen to set up the system, is to say, what's the common factor here that we can actually easily find in the video? Ah, it's a swastika. So everything with a swastika, gone. We won't tolerate it. When in doing that, they're throwing out a ton of content that I think Coke would be just fine with. And if Coke were smart, they'd love to have their content associated with some of the really good historians you think about um like we were talking about before we started recording the uh, the the daily history of world war 1 um, obviously no swastikas in that but the the really good interesting analytical history that incidentally has a swastika in it or is talking about uh hitler's hitler's germany and what's what happened there and how it can be avoided in the future perhaps but no the system that's been set up for this is everything in this box is, is unacceptable because that's the only way that we can actually police the system and guns fall into that too. You know, you don't want your ad in front of some ISIS snuff video, but that doesn't mean that, that everything that talks about ISIS or everything that talks about firearms or everything that talks about conflict in the middle East also should get canned. And that's, I don't want to get too hyperbolic about it, but that's essentially what, what the system is, is doing.
0: Yeah, and I, I think the system that YouTube has created rewards the caution of marketing uh, executives over everything else, and that is a serious problem uh, that you found a way to circumvent, and I, I hope more people pursue that in the future, but I, I really enjoyed our conversation. So I far. Think this is <laughs> fascinating stuff. Honestly, I would keep talking about this for another hour with you, but I I know that you have to put out with six videos a week, so you got a lot of work to do and I don't want to hold you any longer. So I really appreciate you coming on and and I'd love to have you back on in the future as well uh, when you have some more free time too. My pleasure. I'd love to do it again sometime. Yeah, and and, uh, we're going to head over to the news update now, so everybody stay tuned to hear the latest in the current events for this week. All right, it's time for the news update with contributing writer, Jake Fogelman, this week, Jake, you have a pretty interesting story about gun ownership in the United States and some new data that we have that gives us some insight into how many new gun owners there have been over the last two years, since really since the pandemic started, and, and some of the breakdowns compared to previous years. So what, what's going on with that?
2: Sure. Yeah. So, you know, much of what we've been covering in the news and seeing in other outlets is talking about just how many new gun owners there possibly were when we saw this massive record-breaking spike in gun ownership. Um, You know, we had some surveys suggesting upwards of eight and a half million people. Those were retail surveys, so we don't really, didn't really have a great idea. Um, So there's a new research paper out uh, from a Northeastern University public health professor um, using National Firearms Survey from the 2021 National Firearms Survey Um, and an additional survey that he conducted covering not just during the pandemic, but also the year before to see how rates may have changed. And they found from the 28 month period from January 2019 to April 2021, seven and a half million people is what they're estimating became first time gun owners. Um, so not quite as much as some of the retail surveys suggested, but still a pretty substantial amount of people became first-time gun owners.
0: Yeah, it's certainly lower than what the National Shooting Sports Foundation uh, dealer survey has estimated, but uh, there's a couple of reasons for that that we'll get to in a minute, perhaps the, some of the differences here. But the important point, I think, from this survey is it's another piece of information that shows there really was an uptick in new gun ownership over the course of the pandemic, especially the early pandemic here. That's right. And that's significant. I I think, you know, obviously plays a lot into our politics nationwide, uh, into some of the themes that we've talked about since really, since the founding of the Reload. And and honestly, I was talking about it before that at, you know, places like the Free Beacon and, and Washington Examiner. But this influx of new gun owners will likely have a significant impact on gun politics throughout the country in the course of the next several decades. You know, I don't know that it's necessarily seen some sort of massive immediate impact because that's not usually how people operate. They don't only, you know, you oftentimes don't see them go immediately from buying their first gun to becoming a single issue Voter on right. gun rights, but sure. But certainly, over time, you would likely to see more and more people from this pool of new gun owners move that way, and that's why this is also significant. But back to the survey for a moment. What uh, what did they find in terms of a difference in new gun owners between twenty nineteen and? and during the pandemic, was, was there an increase in the proportion, like the number of people becoming new gun owners, or was it just that there were there were so many more guns sold overall that the proportion stayed the same, but you got a lot more total gun owners? Is that-
2: yeah. The, uh, the researchers found more to that latter point. Um, they said hmm. from 2019 to 2020, they thought the proportion was relatively constant at around 20% of purchasers were first-time buyers. But just the fact that there was a sheer increase in, in volume in 2020, it was, by all metrics, a record-breaking year for firearm sales, that just the absolute amount of sales contributed to an additional influx of new gun owners.
0: Interesting. That, that's interesting. Um, so they're, they're sort of, I guess, going with the idea of a high tide lifts all boats sort of sure. situation where you just had so many more guns sold overall that the proportion of people... Uh, who were new gun owners didn't change, but still resulted in a record number of, of new gun owners, really. And so one of the, you th- we, we reached out to an expert uh, to talk a little bit more about this survey or get, get his insight as well, is the Wake Forest University professor, um, David Umani, who we've had on the podcast before, actually. I'm sorry. But uh, what, what was his take on this this paper? What Did he see any critiques that you know off the bat as to how how the numbers came out here sure he he, uh he thought the survey
2: was conducted well overall he had nice things to say about the methodology but his general overall point was this is something he said and other researchers have said in the past is that just surveys in general uh tend to underestimate gun ownership and so in this case could possibly be underestimating first-time gun ownership um one of the big reasons that he gave uh i have a quote from him here he says one major reason is systemic non-response um which in we've covered before is when you know if you're a gun owner and you get asked hey did you buy a gun or do you own a gun uh some gun owners may quite frankly just not want to respond to that kind of question they don't feel comfortable sharing that information um but he he thought that uh he pointed out that this survey found a personal gun ownership rate of 31 percent. Which is, I mean, that's fairly constant with other polls that we've seen. Um, yeah, and it's yeah, higher than, I mean, you've higher seen than that sun, with so. Gallup.
0: Sure. I think Gallup and Pew have come in somewhere in the in the one third of the population or area as yeah. far as people who personally say they own firearms. You get a much higher rate if you go with people who say they uh, live in a home with a firearm. That's sure. you get out, up into the mid forties with that, uh, usually in the percentages, but. But yeah, th- this does seem to come in close to what a lot of other survey-based estimates have, have right. said in the past, so yeah.
2: Another interesting thing that I did want to point out, um, we've heard a lot of trends about the, the increasing diversity in gun ownership, uh, particularly amongst new gun owners. A lot of retail uh, surveys mentioned that. They thought, you what know, well, almost half of my customers now seem to be women, uh, minority gun owners. Um, and this was actually confirmed in this study, um, and they actually said that uh, they thought it predated just the COVID pandemic. They said in 2019, um, they were already starting to see this increase in diversity. I have some some of the numbers here. Um, just in that 28-month period studied, 48% of new gun owners were female, 21% were Black, 19% Hispanic. And another trend, uh, the second largest age group of new gun owners were under 30, so those 18 to 29. So a big increase in young uh, gun owners who are traditionally less represented in gun ownership in previous surveys.
0: Yeah. And this, this again, backs up what really the industry has been saying for years about the demographic change in gun ownership in the United States. Uh, I think, and we've talked about this before as well. Sure. You know, 2020, early 2021 uh, isn't changing the paradigm, but it's accelerating that movement towards... A more diverse uh, population of gun owners in the united states and this survey really backs up that theory uh and it backs up it was kind of a win for nssf the national shooting sports foundation because they they're this matches fairly close to their dealer surveys sure. um, you know not exactly right it's the, the numbers aren't perfectly aligned but they're they both show the same broad strokes at, and it matches up with the studies they've been doing for nearly a decade now when it comes to demographic uh, changes within gun ownership in America. So, uh, you know, just more evidence to what's been out there. I think it's, but it's coming from a, a different source, which is always a valuable thing to try and uh, get a better idea of what's going on. If you have multiple different sources with different motivations and different incentives coming to the same conclusion that usually gives you a better ch- uh, there's a better chance that that means the conclusion has some validity to it. So, uh you know, the interesting survey, a uh, good piece on your part by the way. Um and uh yeah, I think that's it for this week. But uh if you want to get the podcast a day early or have a chance to appear on the podcast, uh I think we're going to have a, another members segment coming up pretty soon. I had one of the members reach out recently. Uh we're probably after once the new year start it gets going, really, we'll we'll have some more members on. But that's another opportunity you, you get if you're subscribed to the Reload. If you buy a membership, you can be on the podcast. Uh, you will also get exclusive access to dozens of special reports and analysis pieces that you cannot get literally anywhere else. So, if you want access to that, make sure you head over to the Reload dot com today and check out what we have to offer in terms of monthly subscriptions, yearly subscriptions. And uh, lifetime subscriptions for those who want to go above and beyond to support the work we're doing. We are 100% independent and reader-funded, so uh, we we certainly need your support to keep this whole thing going. And we'd encourage you to check out those options today or sign up for the free newsletter. If you just want to see what we're about, Uh, you'll get the free newsletter every Friday. It gives you the latest on what's going on in guns in America. And... The members get an extra newsletter every Sunday as well. So that's it for this episode, and we will see you guys again real soon.